right, everybody, welcome. We're so glad that you are here this evening. My name is Justin Hare. Uh, this is Brian McGreevy, and you're at Theology on Tap. We're excited for tonight, or excited that you came out. If this is your first time, you'll see these little sheets of paper kind of scattered around the room. The, uh, these are important because you can follow along uh, with all things Theology on Tap by signing up for our email list below, and you'll see this QR code at the top. The way this evening works is Brian and I will be talking uh, tonight about the issue of money, which I'm really excited about. And then uh, about 8.05 or so, we'll throw it open and, and look at sort of any questions that you have. So starting now uh, till, you know, really we're done at 8.30, you can text in anonymously any question simply by scanning that top QR code. And we'll have somebody moderate all the different questions, like the ones that you see there. And those will hopefully bubble all the good ones to the top. And we will do our best to answer them quickly and nicely. Efficiently. Efficiently. That's right. So, Brian, before we jump in, uh, Chick-fil-A cauliflower sandwich. Everybody's dying to know what your thoughts are. <laughs> I am a purist. I do not intend to try the Chick-fil-A cauliflower sandwich. Does it what make, about you? Does it make it the Lord's cauliflower? It is not it's... the Lord's cauliflower, <laughs> nor is it the Lord's chicken. No, uh, no. Just say no. I don't know about that. I have not tried it. I agree with you. I'm not going to try it. Well, tonight um, we are going to talk about, I think this is the, the title of what we're doing is, is it possible to want, save, use, and give money to the glory of God. I think a lot of those verbs get at some of the problems that people have or preconceptions of Christianity in terms of, well, is money bad? Is, uh, that probably is one area that people look at uh, Christianity or the church saying money is, you know, you need to avoid it. It's the, the root of all evil. And we'll talk about that, I'm sure. Um, and then a lot of young adults that we talk with recognize that they just have to use money in some ways. They have to make a living and all of a sudden now they're trying to learn how do I balance that? In fact, it's one of the most common questions that has come up in our time of doing Theology on Tabs. Almost every time we do this, there's a question that relates to money. And there's so many different themes that tie to this, but if you had 15, 20 minutes with somebody right out of college, what would you want them to know about what the Bible says about money? That's a great question. Uh, I would love to have that time with anybody coming out of college to talk about this because I think that it is one of those areas that people dissociate from their spiritual life a lot of the time, and I think that is so dangerous. And one of the things that a lot of people do not know is that Jesus actually taught more about money than he did about any other topic more than prayer, more than, you know, you would have some people um, might say, oh, all Jesus did was talk about things people can't do, uh, which is not true. Uh, but he, he did talk a lot about money. And I think the reason that that is so important is that in this whole idea of um, talking about money and its role in your life, getting straight about whether money is a tool or whether it is the goal is really, really important. And I think part of what happens and what I would love to say to people who are just coming out of school and going into sort of building their lives is that if you chase money as your number one goal, you are doomed 
uh, to a life that is going to be less than what God wants for you. And part of the reason for that is that you can become enslaved to money and to success. And part of that is because we live in a culture that tells us that we have to optimize and we have to, if you have the ability to make more money, you absolutely should do it. Um, if you have, if you can change your career to something where you can make more money, you absolutely should do it. So I would say, I'm not gonna spend the whole 15 minutes saying everything that I would say, uh, but I would, I would talk about that. I would talk about Jesus saying um, that you, no man can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And that if you are trying to do both, you will end up torn apart. And so realizing that money is a tool, that it is a gift to be used uh, judiciously in your life, but it is not the goal of your life. The goal of your life is to love God and to enjoy him forever. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, the word that they use, or Jesus uses, is mammon, right? Which mm -hmm. kind of gets at, what is actually money? It's probably something to, to talk about that gets at some of the root of this, is that mammon meant possessions as yep. well. And I think the first thing I would echo what you were saying is this whole idea that it's an almost a no-brainer. Where, wherever the highest paycheck they're going to give you is where you should go. But that's one of the most important indicators. Now, money's in, um, compensation is not, not a factor in some right. sense, but uh, the Bible standard versus what is the American standard, I think, especially today, that, that's the, uh, the thing that we need to start with, I think, for most folks coming out of a, a college here that really the whole purpose of education is in many ways how to go and make money mm -hmm. as opposed to creating character and virtue and that sort of thing. And so recognizing that uh, that's not actually the most important thing is just to go and try and make a lot of money. And it's a lie. It's a flat out trap and a snare yep. that's going to uh, enslave you your whole life to try and chase this uh, means of, of getting as much money as you can. A lot of the why do you want money? That's, I think, one of the biggest questions. Mm -hmm. So is, is it a sin to want money? No, absolutely not. I think that money is something that can do a tremendous amount of good. Money is necessary for life. Work is honorable and can be virtuous. Um, and making money is one of the ways that we are able to give back, not only to the church, but to people who are in need and to causes that are worthy causes so money is very important in that way but when it becomes the reason that we're living there's a problem yeah and so i think one of the most misquoted verses uh, when it comes to the bible and money is that verse that we alluded to a little bit before it was from first timothy chapter six um i'm gonna read let's see do i have it here yeah um this is a, this is really important because contentment is really, uh, why do you look to money is one of the biggest questions, right, that we have. A lot of people can look to it for security, mm -hmm. control, um, for happiness, yep. right? All those things, money can, that's kind of the end of, of that. And the Bible talks a whole lot about contentment with what you have. Mm -hmm. So this is First Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
If we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, there's that word, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And I think that's typically where people say, well, money in general is the root of all evil. It's actually the love mm-hmm. of money. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says you can't serve two masters. Either you'll serve God or you'll serve money or mammon. Money is a great servant, but it is a terrible master. Yes, yes. and I would say one of the things about that that's so important to try to figure out is that, as you were alluding to earlier, one of the things that has changed dramatically in our university education system over the past two generations, I would say, is that it used to be that one of the major purposes of education was understanding what does it mean to live a life of meaning and purpose and virtue? And what does it mean to live a life well lived? And we have shifted that paradigm dramatically so that now, really starting from nursery school, you want to get into the best nursery school, even if it means camping out overnight to register your child so they can go to the best private school so they can get into the best college and then the best graduate school so that they can make the most money because then they will be happy. But the problem with that is it is a lie. And it's hard to believe that's a lie when you're the age that most of y'all are. But when you're my age, it's really easy to believe it because I've seen the wreckage along the way of people that I care about who've gone deeply down that path and it has just been terribly destructive for them. Yeah. A true story. My wife works in uh, several preschools, and people actually do that sort of thing. And they will camp out, uh, maybe not camp out, but trying to get their children in the best well, in possible. Well, a lot of cities they do literally camp well, out. That, yep. She hasn't experienced that, but I, I don't doubt it. Because as soon as uh, the baby is born, most people are going ahead and signing up for some wait list two, three years down the line so that they can get into the preschool, so they can get into the private school, so they can get sometimes even holding children back just so that they're older to have a leg up on others, which is, uh, at that point, I was like, you know, you got to be kidding me. But that's, that's it's actually right. yeah. A, yeah. a thing. So, um, you know, well, what about, like, saving money? Surely that's got to be bad. I mean, does the Bible um, say we should even work for retirement? Should we ever retire at all? Should we save our money? I mean, is that not loving money? Um, no. So I would say saving money is a worthy thing. Scripture tells us that it is important to provide for your family, that if you don't provide for your family, you're worse than a bandit. Um, so that's pretty clear. But the, the trick is thinking about how much is enough. And I think it was John D. Rockefeller that said, enough is always a little bit more than what you have right now. Mm-hmm. And the problem is that we are not very good at limiting ourselves. And what happens is there's a difference between saving and then trying to have enough money so that all of your security is in the money that you have. Because there's a principle that runs through scripture all the way from the Old Testament when the manna was coming down to the children of Israel when they were on pilgrimage, they were not allowed to store up the manna because if they did, it would rot and become nasty with maggots and all sorts of things. 
because the Lord wanted them to learn to depend on him. And I think that theme carries right on through. And you remember Jesus' parable about uh, the bigger barns, about the man who says, I have done so well, my crops have produced really well, I'm going to build bigger barns to hold all and store all of this excess that I have so that I can say, self, I'm going to lie back and rest easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus in the parable says, the Lord said to him, you fool, tonight your life is required of you, and then who will get all of what you have worked for? And I think there's a deep truth in that. And you fool, in Jesus' time, that is strong language. Uh, and I think what Jesus is saying is that is the ultimate foolishness to think that piling up money is going to make you secure or bring you happiness. Yeah, that was Luke 12, the parable of the rich fool, which, by the way, you almost quoted verbatim, which is kind of amazing. Um, I can't do that. I think, yeah, you look at a lot of the places, Jesus himself, in the, the parable of the talents, rebukes the, the stewards, which was probably a word we should come back to, uh, somebody who manages what they've been entrusted with. I think that's a really helpful paradigm when it comes not just to money, but all of our lives. We are stewards. He rebukes those who do not go and then make more and invest and, and that sort of thing, as opposed to just he rebukes the one who just saves it, puts it away. So in some sense, he's expecting more out of those who's been entrusted with something. You also, I love the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say. Uh, especially yes. in the Old Testament, there seems to be uh, more places where uh, poverty is, is not a sign that things are great. Just as uh, in the New Testament, and that, that's true there too, like so one of the worst things that could happen in, in your life with God, is, in Romans 1 it says, if God just gives you everything you ever wanted and just totally lets you have the life you always wanted. That's one of the worst things. It's giving yourself over. giving. Or he, to, but God says, um, giving them up to the desires of their yeah. heart. Yeah. That's probably the worst thing that God can do for sinful people like us. And so um, having a lot of wealth isn't an indication of God's blessing. Also being poor isn't necessarily an indication of uh, his cursing. But I do think Proverbs, specifically Proverbs 6, talks about the sluggard, right? And how... He says, uh, this is Solomon talking to his sons, Look at the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard, and will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber. Poverty is not a good thing in that situation because there's a way to be lackadaisical, to be a sluggard, and to have your life uh, unravel before your eyes. And so poverty is not, sometimes people can look and say, oh, the really highest people are um, those who have poverty, the really, uh, and there's also the false other end of the spectrum, which says God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy, and that's also not true. So it's, it's neither of those, but um, Saving, clearly in that verse in Proverbs 6, gathering like the ant does in times of harvest, preparing for times that are harder, uh, is not foolishness, but wisdom. Yes. 
I think that's exactly right. And I think it all comes back to that Timothy verse uh, about what your motivation is. And if it's loving money, that's problematic. But if you are, you know, scripture is one of the things people get so confused about sometimes is work is not a curse. There was work in the creation before the fall. And so work is not a curse. Work is something that has dignity and it's something that we are called to do. And a lot of the problems that you see with people that have great wealth are the people that have stopped working and then they end up falling into all sorts of snares, as the scripture says, because of that. But I think that the, the tricky thing in our culture is to dissociate our identity and our worth from the amount of money that we make. Because I think our culture wants to equate those things. And that is a profoundly unscriptural idea. Yeah. Um, so, what was it? Uh, the fact that we are made by God to be in his image, to create in addition, to cultivate the earth, all of that, our work, as you said, has value, which really is what, what money is, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, what we're doing in following after God's command to uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and rule it, all of that has value. And money is just an arbitrarily assigned value. And I think that's also really important when we think about how can you tell money is really just a uh, kind of a window into your heart, what, you, what are you loving, what are you valuing, can be, be indicated by your checking account. You know, look at where your money is going. It's probably a good indicator of what you love. Mm-hmm. And that's why Jesus is saying, if you're looking to, really what money, what, what are you looking money to do, or what are you looking for money to do in your life? Are you looking for it to provide security? Shouldn't do that, right? Because your security, the scriptures say, comes from God alone. Are you looking for it as as a means to happiness through eating and drinking and being merry, that won't suffice either. Is there any other things that you can think of money as as an end to something? Well, I think there's also money as a means to identity. Yeah. And thinking that if I make enough money, then that somehow validates me and people will think that I'm worthy. Yeah. And uh, that, I think, is just such a snare. I'm going to tell a really quick story Uh, But back in the day when I was a lawyer, I was making a lot of money. So it was the 80s, which was the big yuppie era. But I thought that I was an amazing person uh, because I was in my 30s. I had a six-figure salary. I had a red BMW, a house with a swimming pool in Buckhead and Atlanta and big white columns. And I was like so cool because of that. And then my company came to me and said, we want to put you in line to be CEO. And the CEO of that company in the 80s made $500,000 a year. And I was like, that's very tempting. But at the same time, I was so unhappy with what I was doing because I was having to travel three weeks out of every month. I was away from my family. I was like, I don't know how this is all going to work. And um, so I said, I'm not sure about this. decided that they were going to take me on this boondoggle trip to Italy um, to try to convince me to do this job. And so we're on this boondoggle trip with the CEO who's making that salary at that point. And we're in Milan, staying in the Four Seasons Hotel, and he spends all afternoon shopping 
and buys a $900 sweater for his son who's 20 years old. And I'm like, wow, I didn't know you could spend $900 on a sweater. <laughs> his wife has flown in to meet us, so we're having dinner in the Four Seasons, and there are like movie stars and all these other people in there. And he's so proud that he's bought the sweater, so he pulls it out at dinner to show his wife what he bought for his son. And she picks up the sweater, she gets red in the face, throws the sweater at him, and says, do you not know after 20 years that your son is allergic to wool? Wow. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. That's very clear. That is not where I want to be. And I have the greatest thing that the Lord ever did was to call me out of that and give me the courage to quit and do something different because I just shuddered to think if I had stayed in that world where I would be now. Wow. Um, I think for me, the biggest temptation when it comes to money is look is thinking that I can be self-sufficient in my uh, own life and that if I just get enough, which I, I love the verse from Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. He who loves wealth, um, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Yes. And Ever. To, to think that it doesn't matter what it is. It will always need, as you said, to be a little, a little more. bit more when you look for it for that control and security and so I think that we've talked about anxiety before but I think those two issues actually are profoundly related mm -hmm. to one another uh, the idea of I have to have enough I need to be my own uh, person in control of my life and if I can get that then I won't be um, in trouble and I can control that and right. so I'm worried and then everything will be great right and I'm worried about the fact that I can't control everything. And that's where worry and anxiety so often come into play. And I think we're particularly susceptible to that in this day where we're all taught just from even smartphones and all these things in, uh, reinforce the fact that we can be self-sufficient. And um, I think, so thinking about anxiety, how would you combat that sort of understanding when it comes to money? How would you help somebody who struggles either with uh, looking for money with their security or their identity, uh, what advice would you give them to say, all right, avoid that by doing this? Yeah, I would say oh, so much of it is about what you choose to invest in, um, not monetarily, but time-wise. And if you are spending all of your time um, with people that are completely bought into that worldview, you're going to be in trouble because one of the things Proverbs also says and this is my own paraphrases, you become your friends, uh, which essentially bad company corrupts good character. Uh, but you become your friends, so you can begin to buy into that worldview, and you keep thinking, why is this not working for me? What's wrong with me? Um, but I think that when you begin to invest in things that are eternal, which are the things of the kingdom of God and other people in relationships, that that can profoundly change um, your attitude about that. And you can also look to, especially if you're a Christian, how much time am I spending in the things that scripture tells me I should be doing? How much time am I spending in worship? How much time am I spending in scripture? How much time am I spending in real fellowship? How much time am I spending in giving back um, to others? All of those kinds of things. Because typically, when you are really consumed with money, 
you will find that you also are really consumed with things that relate only to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, a couple things. The just like uh, the antidote to overworking and thinking about, well, I am what I produce in the world, which is related to this. God said one day a week, Sabbath. stop working. Yeah. Take a Sabbath. Cease from your work. That is a flag in the sand that mm-hmm. marks that you're resisting the narrative of the world around us that says you are what you produce. In that same way, when we give generously, mm-hmm. that in some way is an antidote to trying to accumulate and secure yourself in what you can do. And so that's one of the things God commands giving, but doing it cheerfully, as Second yep. Corinthians says. I've been helped in the places that Jesus, he's not, always, he's not trying to be um, somebody who's robbing you of joy. He's not trying to put you in a straitjacket and say, oh, don't love money. I don't want you no, to be happy. He's trying to give you joy. He's trying to give yep. you joy. Because yep. if you try to control your life, you will fail all the time. He is the one that has the strong enough hands, the big enough hands, to control and, and give you the security that you need. And so it's not trying to cultivate your own identity, but by recognizing who you already are in God's eyes. This is why Jesus says, uh, seek first the kingdom of heaven. And he says, think about, this is in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, think mm-hmm. about the, the lilies of the field. Think about the sparrows, how small and seemingly insignificant these things are. Do you notice that they don't toil and spend? They, yet they have food, they have what they need. Does not your heavenly Father care infinitely more for you in his image? And he will give you what you need. That's exactly that um, p- passage in Exodus you were talking right. about. The, he gives the people, uh, uh, his people in Exodus, what they need in the manna every day. Right, and which is that. why in the Lord's Prayer we pray, give us this day our daily bread. And we don't, we don't get an Amazon delivery that lasts for the rest <laughs> of our life about bread. Uh, we get our daily bread. And learning to trust in God's provision like that is one of the things that will enormously build your faith. But if you don't ever take the risk to do that, that will never happen. It's so counterintuitive to, you, you think the more I can get, the more I can store up, the more peace I will have. But it's actually the daily yeah. dependence on the fact that you cannot bring yourself peace. Mm-hmm. But he will give you what you need that actually produces that kind of peace. It's so counterintuitive, but that's the, the secret to finding the peace and the joy that he wants for you. Yeah. Any concluding thoughts that, that you have on this? Anything else you'd say? I would just say that I think it is really important. Uh, the earlier that you can get this figured out, um, the better, because I know so many people that have, what you don't want to do is end up being 55, divorced, rich and lonely because you have devoted your entire life to trying to follow this lie that money will bring you happiness. And so I think the earlier that you figure this out, and I also think generosity and giving, um, even at an early age in your life, is really important. Uh, One of the things that's sort of the counterpart of John D. Rockefeller saying you always need a little bit more Um, C.S. Lewis said that in terms of giving things away, it always needs to be a little bit more than you're comfortable doing. And one of the great things about Lewis that a lot of people don't know is he put um, virtually all of the earnings of all of his books into a blind trust that went to widows and orphans. And um, he got caught short the first year he did it because 
he didn't have enough money to pay his taxes because he had given away <laughs> all of the money. But he said that was, he felt like that he needed to do that um, in order to keep his heart um, focused toward God. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, sacrificial giving is the moment where he meets you in your weakness and you know that in, he always ends up providing. Yeah, and there's joy. In and that. there's joy, not just yeah. in seeing what it does for others, but even in recognizing I am not in control, yes. but you are, and you're going to multiply this as you see fit, and yet give me what I need. That's yeah. the contentment that can come. It's bigger than your socioeconomic status and tax bracket. It's something far grander that is a much bigger purpose to yes. be a part of. Well, um, who's going to do... We got somebody for... Yeah, Ian. Great. Why don't you take us to the questions? Everybody, please, if you haven't already, take this sheet of paper. There are several lying around in the room. And ask the question. Be vulnerable. Uh, they are anonymous. Um, and ask the hardest questions you can, whatever comes to your mind. Uh, these gentlemen have a lot of wisdom between them. So take a minute, think about it, ask those questions. And then throughout the session, be sure to vote on each question that you want to hear. Uh, we'll try to be as you're doing that, I will highlight a book that I brought. This is a book I give to folks who graduate college. I find it really helpful. It's called After College. There's a chapter in here on some really basics of finances when it comes to adulting. So if you don't have a budget, if you don't know the first steps to take, it's a really, really useful book. There's a lot of tools in there. So um, also talk to us. We can help you with that. But sometimes being faithful in what you want your money to go actually to, what you want your priorities to be, just needs a little bit of help sometimes, and it can really change um, the freedom and joy that you have in your life. And one other thing I would say, because um, I'm not sure we touched on this, is that it is not a sin to be rich. Uh, one of the things Timothy talks about is that there are people that God enables to be rich, and he calls them to be generous with their riches. And some of you who were at St. Philip's annual meeting um, Sunday heard a wonderful story about an older lady who joined St. Philip's about five years ago and was deeply drawn to the Lord through her time there. And she didn't really have any heirs, and she was quite wealthy and chose during her final illness uh, to change her will so that she left millions of dollars to St. Philip's to establish an endowment there. And it was an act of amazing generosity that was rooted in her faith, but it could never have happened if she wasn't rich in the first place. Yeah. No, we didn't. We should have talked. We had so much to talk about that, but hopefully that'll come up. Y'all have questions. no idea how much trouble we have limiting ourselves. Yeah. The, the Bible speaks a lot about it, I think. <laughs> It'll come up. Surely it'll come up. All right. First question is, does a lack of tithing indicate a lack of faith? I.e., I know what to do with my money better than God does. That is a great question. So um, the Old Testament standard for giving is 10%, which is known as the tithe. And all through the Old Testament, if you were a righteous person, that is what you were to do. And so many people carry that over um, into the New Testament. Uh, 
and it's great to tithe. It is a principle where if you give that sort of principle of giving the first fruits of your labor to the Lord is one that runs all through Scripture. But the New Testament standard of giving, I would say, is actually not the tithe. Um, the New Testament standard is that everything that you have um, comes from the Lord. And so you, you need to be aware of whatever he may be calling you to give. Um, that being said, I think the tithe is a great discipline. It's a great way to begin um, to practice giving back uh, to uh, the work of the Lord and the work of the church. Uh, but the, you know, it's important to remember that all of it is God's to begin with. Do you want to add to yeah, that? Yeah, I think um, generally when you go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it's not uh, denouncing all that's come before, but it's actually taking it to the next level, right? And so 10% is probably a good place to start, but getting to the heart of that question, I do think um, that you have to ask yourself, wh why do I feel the need to hold on to this, and where is it going? And so it's always going to go back to motivations. If it, I think part of the question had to do with, I know better what to do with my money than God does, that already is sending up little signals of maybe you should maybe that's the Holy Spirit calling you to give more sacrificially than you are. But sacrificial giving is, in fact, what I would say um, is a good place to start. If you're, I think you alluded to that. If you're not giving and you think that, oh, man, I don't know if I can do that, then you're probably not giving what God's calling you to actually give. It should make you, should hurt a little bit. It should stretch you, right? I think yes. that's probably a better way to yes. phrase it. At what point does the church realize it has gone from a ministry to a country club organization feel and lost its overall mission? Yeah. That is a good question, too. I think that is always something that is a danger. Um, I think that part of where uh, you can run into trouble with that is when a church quits preaching the whole counsel of God. Um, where you uh, don't really take seriously what the scriptures are teaching uh, and are not uh, seeking to obey what Jesus calls the church to. Uh, I think also that can be a place where there is no outreach at all, um, all of those kinds of things. I think a country club mentality to me indicates an idea of... Uh, entertaining people and uh, what scripture calls in Timothy uh, finding teachers that will tickle people's ears uh, so that you're telling the people what they want to hear and not ever challenging them to deeper obedience yeah uh, I think country club mentality like any club is uh, it exists for the sake uh, of the, the sake of its members there yeah the church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not already members it exists, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. And we get a great picture in Acts chapter 2 of what that looks like, where uh, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, so teaching the whole counsel mm -hmm. of God, the, the Old and New Testament scriptures. That's part of what it means to make disciples. It also, um, having fellowship in the church, being a part of the body, uh, and breaking of the bread that's worship and prayer. Those four elements make up a lot of what the church is meant to be about, which is ultimately making disciples of all nations. And when that 
any kind of one of those falls apart, I would say you've lost sight of what you're meant to be about. If the Bible encourages us to tithe, but we don't have a home church, how are we supposed to know who to give tithe to? Yeah. Well, there are several things I would say there. Is if you don't have a home church, uh, I would encourage you to find one. Uh, there are a lot of good churches out there. Uh, but the other thing I would say is that there are so many different worthy Christian ministries that need support. And so I think giving to any of those, um, some of you uh, will know the acronym ECFA, which is the Evangelical Council for Financial Accountability. That's basically a way of knowing if a, if a church group is approved by that, that they're not some sort of a scam, uh, that you can feel good that the money that you're giving is actually gonna go for the purpose. Uh, if you have absolutely no idea what to do, one of the great places you can give money that's headquartered right here in Charleston that's an amazing ministry is Water Mission. Water Mission is a profoundly Christian ministry that brings fresh water, clean drinking water to people where there are natural disasters or places where there is no clean water and they bring it with sharing the gospel as well. So there were some of the first people on the ground in Turkey and Syria after these earthquakes. Um, that is a very worthy organization to support. Yeah, we've already talked about the tithe, the 10% and sacrificial giving kind of for the, the New Testament's era. I would say, going back to this, more than just encourage you, I would say the New Testament pattern is that you should belong to a church. Mm -hmm. it, that, that is an anomaly to be a Christian and not actually a member. If you look at Acts chapter 2, what I just talked about, the devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, uh, to the breaking of bread, and to the fellowship. That fellowship had a number to it. It said the Lord added to their number. These were people who had roles, who knew names with faces, and that it's the accountability to know one another. And it's to part actually, of who they were. That's exactly yeah. part of yeah. who they were. And they contributed to the needs of those people first and foremost. And so it's not primarily helping Brian and I have a paycheck. It's about contributing to the lay people, the people in the church to ha who have needs on a daily basis. This is something uh, in the ministry of the church. I think that's where... A lot of people think the tithe is just going, I don't know what they think it's going to, but uh, it should be going to the ministry and to the upbuilding of the believers in a specific location. So I can't stress that enough. It's an anomaly if you are not actually, if you profess to be a Christian, to join a specific church is, is really, really, really the norm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we've had some great new questions pop up, so take a look if you haven't already. But this next question is... The top voted question, although it's not explicitly stated on the topic we have tonight, perhaps we can frame it in that context. This question is, what advice do you have for those in a Christian relationship that are not engaged or married, but are wanting to grow towards a Christian marriage? That is a really good question. I think uh, seeking counsel is a sign of wisdom. And we live in a culture where uh, we don't necessarily want to seek counsel, that we are very wise in our own eyes a lot of times. Uh, but I think there are several things that uh, people in that situation could do. One resource that I think is a great resource uh, is Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. 
Uh, that is a terrific book that talks about uh, a very countercultural view of what marriage actually is all about. Uh, so I think that is a great thing. Uh, another thing that I would encourage people to do, one of the things we miss out on that is all over the New Testament is this whole idea of intergenerational relationship and learning from the wisdom of people who are older than you. So I think looking, finding people whose marriages you admire, um, who are people who are strong in their faith, and then intentionally spending time with them and asking um, for whatever wisdom they might want to share with you um, can be a great thing to do as well. Yeah, that was going to be, that, that was the most helpful thing for me. I, finding another, it was actually a friend of mine, her parents were Christians and had a wonderful marriage, and it was really helpful for me to see that in action. And the hardest thing is just inviting people into it, because the thing that we believe today is what I do with my own romantic life and my sexuality is my business. My business. Nobody yep. else can tell me what to do, and that's just dangerous. It's not helpful. You need to invite other people who are godly folks into that to speak into it and, and see it and also listen to them. And the other thing I would say is that so many people today come from backgrounds where there is great brokenness and pain um, in their families and in marriages that they're aware of in their families. And you do not have to be doomed to repeat that cycle. And one of the, the great ways to get out of that is to find people, um, just as we were saying, who are older and wiser, who have healthy relationships and to learn from them. Are there any rules of thumb that you and your family have when it comes to managing your finances? Uh, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I would say Jane and I were really good about that when we were younger. Uh, because we were on a very tight budget at certain points. And uh, when I quit that job and we started our own business and virtually had no income some months, um, we had to have very strong rules about that. But one of the things that was a rule was that we had a budget and that we tried to follow that budget. Another was that we would make financial decisions about any amount that exceeded $500 together. Um, that was really helpful. Another thing was that sort of the stake in the ground was that the tithe came first. Um, those kinds of things were really helpful. And you know, they weren't um, big deals, but once you have some of those guideposts in place, it really does help you stay on track. Yeah. Um, very similar to my own experience in marriage, I would say um, that communication is probably the biggest thing. I married somebody who is a early elementary teacher who cannot do math at all. And so doing money and finances just was going to be a disaster for us if she did that. So I developed the budget. I typically do a lot of that. But we, we were both, our natural proclivities are not to be big spenders on things. and with very few exceptions on kind of what she can kind of spend on on the kids we found out since we had kids she can very easily spend on them but not on uh, herself and so usually just communicating okay one of the things we've always valued is wanting to grow in how much we give that we're going to start somewhere if you've never given start somewhere and then try to build on that year after year and so that was important to us 
and uh, also trying to teach our children. I mean, my parents did not teach me. I never knew, had no idea how to do a budget, how to, what money they made. It was taboo. You never mm -hmm. talked about it. And so it was really important for me, even when our kids were very young, to try and talk to them about this, that money is not an evil thing. It's a means by which God gives us kind of what we need, but it's his. All of it is his. And so we're going to give it back to him uh, and use it in prayerfully in ways that we uh, feel the need to. And so we don't give all of it to the, we other. We support other ministries as well outside of the church. Uh, but we look at what we're spending very practically and we communicate a lot about where we are and what we need to do and where we need to shore up spending and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Also want to encourage everybody that we're not going to get to all the questions on the list. So if you have one that did not get asked, feel free to again approach our clergy. clergy. We got five minutes. Is that a challenge? Uh, no, <laughs> no, we can go rapid fire. And the unasked ones will end up in the question bowl for next time we do questions. We bowl. need to do that again. Some of these are a bit of uh, a cauliflower sandwich maybe in there, too. So <laughs> uh, we already answered we that already definitively. Answered that. So. Uh, this next question, what should we do when we see people in our church suffering from greed and selfishness with their money? That is a great question. Again, uh, I think greed and selfishness can produce great suffering. Uh, I think praying for those people is really important. Um, I think a lot of this depends on what the nature of your relationship is with those people. If they are people to whom you are close, uh, then I think praying about whether the Lord would have you speak into that situation um, with that speaking in being based out of scripture, uh, that would be, I think, the place to start with that. Uh, I think that it is important, again, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about that whole idea of the speck in your neighbor's eye and the log in your own eye. And I think we have to be very careful about judging where anyone else is in their relationship with God with respect to those sorts of things. But all of that being said, I think if you are in prayer about it, and then if you check your motivation and it is out of love for those people, and you have a sufficient relationship to be able to speak in, then to pray that God would create the moment if he wants you to do that. Yeah. Seeing greed, like seeing any other sin, is you can see behaviors, right? But that may not necessarily be greed. I mean, nobody thinks they're actually greedy. It's probably of all the seven deadly sins it's probably the one that's the most covert but um like any sin whether it's greed or whatever it is you have to as you said i think look uh you, you recognize one you can't see their heart and secondly as you said the the speck it is not loving just to let that somebody that even if you have the hunch that may be the holy spirit saying to have a conversation how you have a conversation is really important it, it begins with love and concern for somebody, which is normally going to ask questions first about that. And so if you're going to approach somebody with, you know, guns blazing, I'm going to, I see this sin in your life, I'm just going to tell you all about it. It's probably not going to go well, even if it's true, right? And so the way people will And that hear, would not be speaking the truth in the law. That's right. And so I, I think if you see perhaps bad fruit on a tree, what could be, 
we want to assume the best, but if you have a nudge, move toward rather than just moving away and ask questions. And, and, and I think those who see people who genuinely care and express curiosity about certain behaviors, if you have a mutually agreed upon standard, which is what Christians do, uh, that are standards, the scriptures, mm-hmm. then coming in and seeking to invite a word. I, I know even if I staunchly disagree with somebody, I'm going to really appreciate that they had the courage to come up and ask me, how's this, how's your relationship with money right now? You know, how's your relationship with how you're spending your time? Are you, you know, it, procrast- like procrastination or stuff like that? But um, that generally, I'll, I'll appreciate that as opposed to somebody who's just going to stay back and not interrupt. Well, and coming in a posture of humility. Right, that yeah. too, yeah. yeah. All right, this next question. You discussed money and self-worth, but what about money as a means of influence? Suppose it depends on what is being influenced. See, I knew it would come up. This was one of the ones that I, I think it's actually, so we never really talked about, is it bad to want money? And I think this falls under that category. Money can be, if you think about it, working and trying to make a good benefit of money allows you to then give it away and have influence because of that. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's necessarily wrong to want money, but the heart is deceitful <laughs> beyond yeah, measure. Yes. And so what you think you may want money for and what you actually want money for may be very gray. And so I would say be careful, but I, I do think that it is, in theory, feasible to want to make money in accordance with what God's given you and your gifts and your calling, which is an important aspect of that, but then to then have influence and, and give things away. I mean, I know folks who have made a lot of money and they tithe 90% instead of 10%, right. yep. but precisely because of this reason. Yeah, I would say that's exactly right. And I think that the important part is being accountable to other people uh, and really checking your motivation. Uh, in all of that. But I do think that some people are very much called to do that. And one organization I'm aware of is something that is called the Fellowship for the Performing Arts, which uh, does a lot of dramatizations of plays that C.S. Lewis wrote. They did the movie, The Most Reluctant Convert, that some of y'all may have seen. And there are several very wealthy people that help fund that. And they feel called by God to do that. And there are literally thousands of people that have come to faith in Christ because of that. And that organization could never have done what it does without people who were called to give generously and who had the means to do that. That's good. One more. One more. I try to save money, but I've noticed that it's gotten to the point where I can be scared to even make small purchases. How do you balance spending and saving? I think that that's a hard question to answer in generalities, but I think part of the answer to it is to realize that every spending decision is a spiritual decision. That every time you spend money, it is a spiritual decision because you are saying yes to something and no to something else. And so I think figuring out that balance and then also looking at what are the things that you tend to spend money on. 
doing an audit of your bank statement uh, or your Venmo account or whatever um, means you might have of seeing where your money's going Checkbook. can be, nobody writes checks. Um, <laughs> even people my age don't write checks anymore. Uh, but I think having a sense of where your money's going, that will really help you get an idea of where there might be some issues. And I think getting a handle on that is the first step and being able to um, make whatever adjustments you might need to make. Sitting down and doing a budget may be one of the most spiritual activities you can do. I think that because money is what you ascribe value to. And, and God wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And those coalesce in a budget. And so if you sit down and say, what do I want my money to go to? According, when I use what God has said, as we've talked a lot about in his word, what are my values, what should my values be, and how can I be disciplined to, to live more into what I want them to be for God's sake? It's a very spiritual exercise. And so that's what's helped me is sitting down and, and looking at a budget. And there's, you know, trial and error a lot. I, I don't do what I want to be doing all the time. And um, I think that's just always trying to do something and move more into to growing, to be more faithful stewards, uh, and recognizing, I think, the lie that I am what I have produced, that's a lie, and how much money I make can give me security. These are all lies that no matter where you get in your Christian walk, you're going to be tempted with. And so the practice of going back to what is true, what is true, and where do I want my money to go, it's... It's really a resistance against all of those lies that will rob you of peace and joy in this life. So that's what I would say. All right, right. on that note, well, thank you all so much for coming out, and we will be back we'll be again back in, in two, two weeks. weeks. Yep. Feel free to stick around. <laughs>